Dear Father, as we discuss just now some uh, very difficult issues, namely, what is it that happens to people who reject your offer of love and friendship and trust? And certainly there's nothing that stimulates or that has stimulated more fear in people than an understanding of what happens in the end. So please lead us to a, a better understanding. We know that perfect love casts out all fear, and so as we really see and understand you, there will be no fear. Amen. Well, I wanted to just go through the last time we'll do this now, because we've after this talk, we will have gone through all of the prophets that give a message here prior to the Babylonian captivity. So we did Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, last week Nahum to Nineveh and Habakkuk. And Zephaniah here, you'll notice I didn't put Joel on the list. I think Joel belongs in here, but there actually is a lot of debate about where to put Joel. For a variety of reasons, I think Joel fits in here. The message is certainly very much overlapping and similar to the message of Zephaniah. So this is just a good time to do both of those books together. So what we're going to do today, Zephaniah and Joel, next week we'll talk about the two prophets that gave a message as the people were going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they came with a message of encouragement, keep building. And then we'll talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, who also were trying to help in the reconstruction of the temple as people came back to Jerusalem. And then, of course, we'll have a break for Thanksgiving. And then we'll finish up the Old Testament. Remember, we've been doing this chronologically. And so chronologically, the last two books of the Old Testament are Esther and Malachi. And then there's a 400-year period of time. And in December, we'll be into Matthew. So it took a year and a half, but we're uh, finally to the New Testament. Okay. So the message of Joel, this is um, really difficult. And this is the description, you might remember, of the locusts coming and destroying everything. And so we're going to read through a little bit of this and just see if we can make sense of what's being discussed here. So this is the Lord's message to Zol. Joel. <laughs> Pay attention, you older people. Everyone in Judah, listen. Has anything like this ever happened in your time or the time of your ancestors? Tell your children about it. They will tell their children, who in turn will tell the next generation. Swarm after swarm of locusts settled on the crops. What one swarm left, the next swarm devoured. Wake up and weep, you drunkards. Cry, you wine drinkers. The grapes for making new wine have been destroyed. An army of locusts has attacked our land. They are powerful and too many to count. Their teeth are as sharp as those of a lion. They have destroyed our grapevines and chewed up our fig trees. They have stripped off the bark till the branches are white. Cry, you people, like a young woman who mourns the death of the man she is going to marry. There is no grain or wine to offer in the temple. The priests mourn because they have no offerings for the Lord. The fields are bare. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The grapes are dried up. And the olive trees are withered, or some versions say the olive oil is gone. I think that might be significant. Um, we'll read next time in Zechariah about the olive trees, which provide oil to the lampstand so that it gives light. And oil, of course, represents truth, the Holy Spirit, all the way through the Bible. In Revelation, we'll talk about the two olive trees and what that might represent. But the fact that there is no olive oil and that the olive trees are withered might give us some clues about what this is describing. Grieve, you farmers. Cry, you that take care of the vineyards, because the wheat, the barley, yes, all the crops are destroyed. 
The grapevines and fig trees have withered. All the fruit trees have wilted and died. I mean, what is this describing? The joy of the people is gone. Put on sackcloth and weep, you priests who serve at the altar. Go into the temple and mourn all night. There is no grain or wine to offer your God. Give orders for a fast. Call an assembly. Gather the leaders and all the people of Judah into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to him, The day of the Lord is near. The day when the Almighty brings destruction. What terror that day will bring. This is our subject um, for this hour. Okay, we read on. Blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm on Zion, God's sacred hill. Tremble, people of Judah. The day of the Lord is coming soon. What is the day of the Lord? It will be a dark and a gloomy day. A black and a cloudy day. The great army of locusts advances like darkness, spreading over the mountains. There has never been anything like it, and there never will be again. Like fire, they eat up the plants. In front of them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them, it is a barren desert. Nothing escapes them. They look like horses. They run like war horses. As they leap on the tops of the mountains, they rattle like chariots. They crackle like dry grass on fire. They are lined up like a great army, ready for battle. As they approach, everyone is terrified. Every face turns pale. They attack like warriors. They climb the walls like soldiers. They all keep marching straight ahead and do not change direction or get in each other's way. They swarm through defenses and nothing can stop them. They rush against the city. They run over the walls. They climb up to the houses and go in through the windows like thieves. The earth, earth shakes as they advance. The sky trembles. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars no longer shine. This is a cheerful book, isn't it? Describing whatever this is. Okay, what is it describing? Well, read on. Now, actually, let's skip ahead. Revelation is entirely from the Old Testament. Okay, all of the symbols and the things that are employed in Revelation come straight out of the New Testament. So when we read here about the fifth trumpet... I think we should read this along with Joel. Maybe this gives us some clue. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star which had fallen down to the earth, and it was given the key to the abyss. The star opened the abyss, and smoke poured out of it like the smoke from a large furnace. The sunlight and the air were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Locusts, there they are again, came down out of the smoke upon the earth, and they were given the same kind of power that scorpions have. They were told not to harm the grass or the trees or any other plant, they could, only, they could harm only the people who did not have the mark of God's seal on their foreheads. And there's a lot of information here, and, and we could spend a long time describing and making a case for what this is. Uh, my own understanding is that the seal of God in the forehead, in the mind, were settled into an understanding about something. And my own belief is that it is we're settled into an understanding of the kind of person God is. And these locusts cannot harm those people. The locusts were not allowed to kill these people, now talking about the other people, but only to torture them for five months, which interesting enough is about the life cycle of a locust. And the pain caused by the torture is like the pain caused by a scorpion sting. During those five months, they will seek death, but will not find it. They will want to die, but death will flee from them. The locusts looked like horses ready for battle. On their heads, they had what seemed to be crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. Their chests were covered with what looked like iron breastplates, and the sound made by their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like those of a scorpion, and it is with their tails that they have the power to hurt people for five months. 
They have a king ruling over them, who is the angel in charge of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In the Greek, the name is Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. Okay, so we should put this together with Joel. So what is happening here? Well, I think it's interesting in just the describing here, they sting people with their tails. When we read later on that in a single day, the Lord will destroy both the head and the tail, and the leaders of Israel are the head, the lying prophets are the tail. Okay, we're, we're struggling here. We're trying to understand perhaps what this might mean. Coming back to Joel. Now, this may be confusing here. Talking about the locusts. The Lord thunders commands to his army. Is this God's army? The troops that obey him are many and mighty. How terrible is the day of the Lord? Who will survive it? But even now, says the Lord, repent sincerely and return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Let your broken heart show your sorrow. Tearing your clothes is not enough. Come back to the Lord your God. He is kind and full of mercy. He's patient and keeps his promise. He's always ready to forgive and not punish. Now, is this God's army that he sends out? Well, so many times, as we've read through the Old Testament, this language is employed. For example, when the Assyrians took off the ten tribes to the north into captivity, God said, Assyria, I use Assyria like a club to punish those with whom I am angry. And we've spent a lot of time explaining what that is, that God gave them up. He allowed this to happen. But yet the description is God used Assyria like a club to punish. Of course, that's not what he wanted. Remember in Hosea, he cried, how can I give you up? How can I give you up? As the Assyrian, Assyrians are taking Israel into captivity. And same thing with, with Babylon. The Lord says, Babylonia, you are my hammer, my weapon of war. I used you to crush nations and kingdoms. This is an expression again. Did God want Babylon to destroy Jerusalem? Of course not. But his people wouldn't listen and he didn't override their free will. He allowed this to happen. The description is God is using them to do it. Okay, in reality, that's, that's not what happened. Okay, well, what happens to this locust army? And God says, I will remove the locust army that came from the north and will drive some of them into the desert. Their front ranks will be driven into the Dead Sea, their rear ranks into the Mediterranean. Their dead bodies will stink. I will destroy them. Okay, this is not God's army. Because of all they have done to you. Now, with this description, if this is describing truth going out of the land and the destructive results of that process, the olive trees are dead, there's no olive oil, uh, they can't harm those who have a seal of God in their forehead, what comes next? The solution. Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on everyone. What is the Holy Spirit always associated with through the New Testament? Jesus said again and again in John, I will send the spirit who will reveal the truth about God. Multiple times, the Spirit will come. He will reveal the truth to you, the truth about God. Okay, so when God pours out the Spirit, here we have a true message. Your sons and daughters will proclaim my message. Your old people will have dreams. Your young people will see visions. And at that time, I will pour out my Spirit, even on servants, both men and women. And it's interesting, of course, Peter quoted this at Pentecost when they spoke in tongues and everyone uh, understood uh, some incredible truth about God at that time. But it goes right back. After this description, I will give warnings of that day in the sky and on the earth. There will be bloodshed, fire, clouds of smoke. The sun will be darkened. The moon will turn as red as blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Again, we want to understand what is this great and terrible day of the Lord. 
And the book of Joel finishes, I will gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of judgment. There I will judge them for all they have done to my people. They have scattered the Israelites in foreign countries and divided Israel, my land. And finally, thousands and thousands are in the valley of judgment or the valley of decision. It is there that the day of the Lord will soon come. And Zephaniah, it is, the, the language is so similar here in Zephaniah as with Joel. And so I just I brought out uh, two verses or two passages here in Zephaniah. Again, talking about the great day of the Lord is near, very near and coming fast. That day will be bitter for even the bravest soldiers will cry out in despair. It will be a day of fury, a day of trouble and distress, a day of ruin and destruction, a day of darkness and gloom, a black and cloudy day. I mean, don't we look forward to the second coming? Is this what this is describing? A day filled with the sound of war trumpets and the battle cry of soldiers attacking fortified cities and high towers. The Lord says, I will bring such disasters on the human race that everyone will grope about like someone blind. They have sinned against me and now their blood will be poured out like water and their dead bodies will lie rotting on the ground. And it would be easy to do a Bible study and leave out these verses, but I think we need to talk about them. On the day when the Lord shows his fury, how does God show his fury? Not even all their silver and gold will save them. The whole earth will be destroyed by the fire of his anger. He will put an end, a sudden end, to everyone who lives on earth. I don't know of a more harsh passage in the Bible than this here in Zephaniah. And it goes on, Shameless nation, come to your senses before you are driven away like chaff blown by the wind, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day when he shows his fury. Turn to the Lord, all you humble people of the land, who obey his commands. Do what is right and humble yourselves before the Lord. Perhaps you will escape punishment on the day when the Lord shows his anger. Okay, so with um, this time we have left, I want to talk about what is this fire of God's fury? What is his anger? And we talked, as you'll remember, several weeks ago about God's wrath, God's anger. What is it? And in literally dozens of examples through the Old Testament, God's anger is his giving up, his allowing a very destructive consequence to occur. God lets them go. He lets them reap the consequences of their sin. And it's not just in a claimed key text, but we see it in an actual example. Jerusalem, God was going to come in anger, burn the city down, and we read on what happened. He allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy the city. And so the clearest place where this all gets put together, Paul, of course, who knew his Old Testament better than Paul, was really a scholar. And so in Romans 1, he describes what God's anger is. And I know we went over this, but it's a very important part, I think, of understanding this, where Paul says God's anger is revealed from heaven against all sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. God punishes them. How does he do that? Because what can be known about God is plain to them, for God himself made it plain. Okay, so the subject here is, what is God's wrath? How does God punish? And Paul makes it very clear. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. And so God, in his anger, what does he do? He has given those people over, given them up, abandoned them, to do the filthy things their hearts desire. He lets them do what they want to do. And they do shameful things with each other. What is the root of the problem? They exchange the truth about God for a lie. 
They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who's to be praised forever. Because they do this, again, what does God do in his anger? He has given them over to shameful passions. Again, why? Because these people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God. He has a third time. What does he do to them? He gives them over to corrupted minds so that they do the things they should not do. So when we read about God's fury, his anger, this is it in a nutshell. So when we read on to Romans 2, now we can apply this. And Paul says, some people keep on doing good and seek glory, honor, and immortal life. To them, God will give eternal life. Remember, what is eternal life? It is to know God. Other people are selfish and reject what is right in order to follow what is wrong. What will God do to those people? On them, God will pour out his anger and fury. And P.S., what is God's anger and fury? Read back just a few verses. God gives them up. And in many other places. And all who believe in God's Son will have eternal life. We're contrasting the two different ways. But those who won't obey the Son will never experience eternal life. But the wrath of God remains on them. Separation. And so when Paul here uh, in Romans 9, he cries about his people, the Jews, who will not receive this message. And he says, For their sake I wish that I myself were under God's curse. Okay, what is God's curse? Separated from Christ. That's the essential issue here. And so we can apply this in, in every time we come across this. In Second Thessalonians, we read, He will do this when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven with his mighty angels, with a flaming fire, to punish those who reject God and who do not obey the good news about our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. What is that punishment? Separated from the presence of the Lord and from his glorious might. And so we come all the way back here, I think, to uh, the initial warning about this. You remember before sin, sin was in the world and we have Satan at the tree, but God's warning to Adam and Eve was, you must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. Now, did this happen? Of course, they lived on for, what, 900 and some years. Was their death of old age the death that God was warning them about when he said, you will die the same day. And of course, what was it that they had actually done? Remember, as we discussed what happened at the tree, Satan came and said, you can't eat any fruit in this garden, can you? God is restrictive. And then he said, God has lied to you. God is an untrustworthy liar. And if you ate this fruit, you would be much better than you are now. God has selfishly withheld what is for your best good. And so when Eve ate the fruit and Adam ate the fruit, yes, they ate the fruit, but they bought the lie. They believed all of those things that were said about God. And so what is the result then when we disconnect from God? When we are at one moment, we are trusting, we're in a friendship with God, and in another moment, we are untrusting, we are rebellious, we have a false picture of God. Are there natural consequences that happen when we separate ourselves from God. And is this what God was talking about here? Why didn't they die the same day? Well, what would have happened had they died? I mean, it would have been assumed God killed them. He pulled the plug on them. And so what did God do? I mean, these, these people, how much did they understand? And so God um, preserves them. They, they live a thousand years. And of course, we have the whole record of the Bible 
of God explaining first about himself and his character, but also about the serious consequences of rebellion and distrust of God. Where do we see this death? Is the death of old age and uh, car accidents, is this the death that God was talking about? In the day you believe those lies about me and rebel, you will die. Well, we are soon coming up to the Gospels, and we'll spend a long time talking about the death of Jesus. But what really happened to Jesus? It's interesting to parallel. Uh, after he was anointed and baptized, he went out to the desert, fasted for 40 days, and yet was able to just defeat Satan there in the wilderness of temptation. And you know, he ends it by saying, beat it, Satan, get lost. All right, now we contrast. After the upper room, he's just had a meal, he goes out into Gethsemane, and what happens? I mean, he falls fainting to the ground. He's in anguish. His you know, sweat is like drops of blood. An angel needs to come and strengthen him. I mean, what is he going through in Gethsemane? You know, we read about, if you've ever read stories of the martyrs, and many of them you know, were singing victorious songs as they were consumed in the flames. Uh, why is God in the flesh seeming to go through such anguish in this whole experience? And that's why I think it is significant that Jesus cries as he dies on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is the same expression, given me up, handed me over, let me go. It is the same expression as the description of God's wrath all the way through the Bible. Did Jesus experience the results of a disconnection from his father, the source of life? And did he show us, you want to see how serious the consequences of sin are? Uh, I'm going to show you. And I think this is how we can relate. This is the serious nature of sin. Is God doing it to someone or is it a result of separating ourselves from God? But of course, we do have one problem here, and that is uh, we don't read that Jesus was burned by any fire. And what did we just read in all these descriptions here in Joel and Zephaniah? Fire. And in Revelation, fire. How do we relate the fire to all of this? And um, of course, as you're aware, there are many different versions of this in Christianity. Um, and uh, many, of course, believe that uh, this is an eternal fire and people will consciously suffer in the flames, not for a short period of time, but for all of eternity. Now, those of you who are Adventists um, know that uh, Sometimes we've explained it in a different way. Well, it doesn't last forever. We have good news. Um, you'll only burn, well, it could be instantly, it could be a day or two, um, but it will end. Now, of course, the problem there is what happens, you know, if any of us were thrown into a lake of fire, how long would you last? I mean, it would be a split second, right? So in that explanation, we have God performing quite a miracle, of course, to keep our bodies alive and all the sensory nerves intact so that we are allowed to experience um, that for an appropriate period of time. And of course, when people say, yes, God is love, but he's also just, it is usually in reference to uh, this kind of a description. He is love, but his justice requires that a certain amount of due punishment uh, be inflicted on those who have sinned. Well, what is the punishment for sin? I mean, let's say we've, let's just say you're walking here through Loma Linda and you walk by a big uh, orange grove and um, you see really a, a good one on there. Maybe there's even a sign 
uh, don't eat the fruit. And maybe there's even another sign. In the day you eat this fruit, you will die. Um, but you know, come on, it's just a piece of fruit. So you grab the piece of fruit and you eat it and then you hear um, the truck engine of the person who owns the orchard start up and uh, the wheels squeal and uh, you know your heart races a little bit and you begin to run and uh, that, the man catches up with you and uh, says, uh, hey, why did you eat my fruit? Now, what, what would he be allowed to do to you? Let's just say if he pulled out a gun and shot you in the head, um, but you stole his fruit. Wouldn't it be, uh, what would you think of that man's conception of justice for executing you for stealing his fruit? This is obviously much more important than fruit. That's not the issue. But the issue does come up. What does God do to people? God, as we've described many times, he wants our love. He wants our friendship. He wants us to trust him. And as described so many times, he wants to marry us. We are the bride, the new Jerusalem coming down to marry God and it almost seems to me it would be like uh, you know proposing to your wife, I want your love, I want your trust, I want to spend uh, you know our lives together, and then but you know what? If you won't marry me, this is what I'll have to do to you, <laughs> and um, and then say now, do you love and trust me? After just having said, I will kill you if you don't marry me. Um, so you know we're, we're grappling and trying to understand, and I think we we can be open up to ask questions. What does God do? Well, let's talk about fire a little bit. And we read in Matthew about John the Baptist. When John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him to be baptized, he said to them, You snakes, who told you that you could escape from the punishment God is about to send? Now, what punishment was God about to send? Do those things that will show that you have turned from your sins. And don't think you can escape punishment by saying that Abraham is your ancestor. I tell you that God can take these rocks and make descendants for Abraham. The axe is ready to cut down the trees at the roots. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. What fire? I baptize you with water to show that you have repented, but the one who will come after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, how did Jesus baptize with fire? He will gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff in a fire that never goes out. Okay, that's interesting. Jesus coming in this way. And uh, in the beginning of Mark, it began as the prophet Isaiah had written. God said, I will send my messenger ahead of you to open the way for you. Someone is shouting in the desert. Get the road ready for the Lord. Make a straight path for him to travel. And so John the Baptist appeared. And of course, Jesus told his disciples, if you are prepared to handle it, the Elijah has come. And it was John the Baptist. Okay, so we go back to that passage in Malachi and we read about John the Baptist and who was to follow. The Lord Almighty answers, I will send my messenger to prepare the way for me. And I think this has a future application as well. But then the Lord you are looking for will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger you long to see will come and proclaim my covenant. But who will be able to endure the day when he comes? Who will be able to survive when he appears? Jesus? He will be like strong soap, like a fire that refines metal, he will come to judge like one who refines and purifies silver. As a metal worker refines silver and gold, so the Lord's messenger will purify the priests so that they will bring to the Lord the right kind of offerings. And you can see maybe why they were expecting their coming Messiah to be a conquering 
hero. In what sense, though, did he purify by fire? This is a description of Jesus. And Jesus' words here, I came to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already kindled. What fire is Jesus talking about? I mean, we see the great love he had for all of these people. He's not saying, I can hardly wait to burn this world and all the people on it. What fire is he talking about? Well, we go back to Jeremiah. For this reason, the Lord, the God of armies, has said, because you have said this, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and they will be burned up by it. And isn't that really what happened? Jesus comes, I mean, the purest revelation of truth. He was rejected. What happened to those people, the Jews? A short time later, they were cut off. Their city was destroyed. My message is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. And then in Jeremiah 1, listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, how did Jeremiah's words destroy Jerusalem? And of course, the meaning here is it was the rejection of his message which led to the, the devastating consequences. So we read this when we talked about the judgment. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge. The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. And the rejection of the words, the evidence, the life, the demonstration of the kind of person God is, is leads to the most horrible consequences. And back to Jeremiah. But when I say, and this kind of talks about the turmoil, and I will bring up here in the next few minutes just the difference between this fire, it has for some a refining, healing influence, and for others a destructive consequence. And even Jeremiah says, but when I say I will forget the Lord and no longer speak in his name, then your message is like a fire burning deep within me. I try my best to hold it in, but can no longer keep it back. And when Jesus walked with the two men on the Emmaus Road, they said, wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? That fire for them was a positive thing. And in First Peter, even gold, which can be destroyed, is tested by fire. And so your faith, which is much more precious than gold, must also be tested so that it may endure. Then you will receive praise and glory and honor on the day, the day when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, a refining influence. And, I, and uh, we talk here in Romans 12, a difficult verse, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Now, what does this mean? We heap burning coals on the heads of our enemies. What does God do to his enemies? Well, and I like to tie this verse in Isaiah 1 along with it. So now listen to what the Lord Almighty, Israel's powerful God, is saying. I will take revenge on you, my enemies. How does he do it? And you will cause me no trouble. I will take action against you. I will purify you the way metal is refined and will remove all your impurity. God's vengeance, his discipline, is ultimately for the good of his children. But of course, we come to Revelation third angel's message. How do we explain this, if, if all of what I've said is true? Well, another angel, a third one, third angel's message, followed them and said in a loud voice, 
Whoever worships the beast or its statue, whoever is branded on his forehead or on his hand, will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured unmixed into the cup of God's anger. Okay, now maybe we're able to understand the unmixed anger of God, what that is. Then he will be tortured by fiery sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. What is that torture? The smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or its statue or for anyone branded by its name. What does this mean? Tortured by fiery sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Well, just very briefly in Revelation, of course, this book is full of symbols. At one, several places, Jesus is a lamb. Uh, we could argue that how the death of the wicked is this way. Jesus comes back with a sword out of his mouth and kills the wicked. Okay, we could make a case if that's literal, for this is how it happens. Of course, we have horns, beasts, a dragon, olive trees, seven lampstands, stars, seals, trumpets, a prostitute, three frogs, a mark of the beast, a seal of the God, many, many symbols. But of course, what most people would say, no, this is the one thing that is not symbolic, is the fire. Okay, we'll explain all of these other things as having meaning, but the fire, uh, that is a literal fire. Well, is it? Let's come back to this verse. And I think it's interesting when we read about tortured by fiery sulfur that it is in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. Now, are the holy angels and Jesus standing in the fire with the people? What does this mean? Why are they suffering so much in the presence of the angels and God? Well, let's just go through briefly the record of the Bible. What happens when God comes into contact with humans? And it's helpful, I think, to tie these verses with it because the Lord your God is like a flaming fire. God himself is a consuming fire. What does that mean? God, the light of Israel, will become a fire. Israel's holy God will become a flame, which in a single day will burn up everything even the thorns and thistles. Okay, in, one, in what sense is God himself a fire? Well, let's go through now. Adam and Eve, of course, they sinned. And as soon as they had eaten, they realized they were naked. And remember, it's very interesting here that the Hebrew word for naked is the same word as Satan was the most cunning, crafty. Same Hebrew word here, naked. Perhaps they realized they were of a different character now. So they sewed fig leaves together, covered themselves, and that evening, God comes for a walk in the garden. And of course, they hid themselves. And God says, where are you? And Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid and hid from you because I was naked. Now, were they hiding from God because he was so bright? Or was it not, it was an anguish here. They had rebelled. They were now out of harmony with God. And that brought terror. Let's go through some other examples. God comes to Moses here in the burning bush. Okay, the bush was not destroyed by the fire, right? And then he comes on to Mount Sinai. And the description here of him coming down on the mountain is like a devouring fire on the top of a mountain. God comes down on the mountain. It's like a devouring fire. And then, of course, sometime later, uh, Moses here gets up his courage and he says, please let me see the dazzling light of your presence. And God says, I will make all my splendor pass before you. And in your presence, I will pronounce my sacred name. I am the Lord, and I show compassion and pity on those I choose. I will not let you see my face, because no one can see me and stay alive. No one can see God's face and live. 
Now, why is that? Is that because something breaks out from God if uh, we peek and see his face? Or is there some consequence, something that results in seeing God face to face? Well, when the dazzling light of my presence passes by, I will put you in an opening in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but not my face. Okay, so we read on what is Moses going to say. And of course, when God comes, he comes in a cloud, stood with him there and pronounced his holy name, the Lord. The Lord then passed in front of him and called out. And there's no description here of what he looks like, but just I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. And so the, the unveiled glory of God here would seem to be uh, a great revelation of his character, his love, his kindness, his gentleness. Okay, now in what sense would being exposed to that in all of its purity be destructive to us? Let's read a few more examples. Job, of course, God comes out of the storm and Job, all he can say is, in the past I knew only what others had told me, but now I've seen you with my own eyes, so I am ashamed of all I have said and repent in dust and ashes. And we know this is Job, who God said in the beginning, there's no one like Job. Um, he is perfect in some versions. And then after this speech of repentance by Job, God says, Job, you have said of me what is right. But yet when Job sees God, he repents in dust and ashes. What about Isaiah? We read the description of Isaiah, seeing God on his throne, fiery throne, and look at his response. There is no hope for me. I am doomed. Because Why? Because every word that passes from my lips is sinful. And I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Notice, what does Isaiah feel? He feels guilt, his sin here in the presence of God. But notice what always happens here is God does something gracious when, when someone experiences something like this. So one of the creatures flew down to me carrying a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of thong, uh, tongs. He touched my lips with a burning coal and said, this has touched your lips and now your guilt is gone. He felt an intense anguish, guilt, and that was removed. Okay, Daniel, same thing. He saw God. I looked up and saw someone who was wearing linen clothes and a belt of fine gold. His body shone like a jewel. His face was as bright as a flash of lightning and his eyes blazed like fire. His arms and legs shone like polished bronze and his voice sounded like the roar of a great crowd. I was the only one who saw the vision, but there were some other people there. Those who were with me did not see anything, but they were terrified and ran and hid. And I was left there alone watching this amazing vision. I had no strength left and my face was so changed that no one could have recognized me. When I heard his voice, I fell to the ground unconscious and lay there face downward. And this is Daniel. I mean, I think as I look through all the men in the Bible, Daniel is like the one who stands out, who, uh, can you think of something bad that Daniel did? I mean, holy Daniel. And here he's confronted with God and he collapses to the ground like a dead man. But notice what happens next. Then a hand took hold of me and raised me to my hands and knees. I was still trembling. And the angel said to me, Daniel, God loves you. Stand up and listen. And then finally, John, of course, in the first chapter, sees Jesus, who he'd walked with, right, for three and a half years. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. Same thing. 
Again, what does God do when we experience this anguish? Well, he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. And I like that in each of these instances, even when holy men of God experience God's presence, there is anguish, there is um, perhaps a feeling of guilt or condemnation, but yet God is always right there with Daniel, God loves you, with John, don't be afraid, stand up. With Isaiah, there is a message uh, uh, to take away his guilt. And so how does all this relate here? Well, I think, what is it that burns? Well, for evil was burning like a fire. The blackberries and thorns were burned up. The thick woods took fire, rolling up in dark clouds of smoke. What is it that burns? The Lord Almighty is going to send disease to punish those who are now well-fed. In their bodies, there will be a fire that burns and burns. This is describing what the the rebellious, the distrustful uh, attitude, I think, in us. Your gold and silver are covered with rust, and this rust will be a witness against you and will eat up your flesh like a fire. Is this a real fire? And then in Ezekiel 28, remember this is the chapter that describes the king of Tyre, and it's Satan. He walked in the Garden of Eden. He was the covered angelic um, cherub. And then we read, what happens to Satan? You defiled your sanctuaries. Okay, what is the sanctuary? Okay, we are the sanctuary. Um, your mind. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So what does God do? So I brought fire from within you. What kind of a fire is that? From within you. And it consumed you. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. And in Isaiah 33, and I think this is perhaps the, the best verse here to try to tie all of this together. But the Lord says, now I will do something and be greatly praised. Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. Now listen to this as it goes on. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. And they ask, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? God is a consuming fire. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That's God. Who can? Well, it reads on. He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, and then as the, the chapter goes on, is described the people who do live with the everlasting burnings, with the consuming fire. Okay, very important. There are people here who, in God's presence, are miserable and want to be let go, and there are people who will dwell in that eternal fire. So is the fire eternal? Yes. God himself is the fire, and I think we will live in that eternal fire for all of eternity. How will we? Well, the description here of the people when God comes back is this. My dear friends, we are now God's children, but it is not yet clear what we shall become. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. And so I think when God comes back, there will be a people who trust him, who know him, his true character, and they will be like him and they will see him as he is in character. And so these people will see his face and his name, his character will be written on their foreheads. And the last verse here, similar to um, Isaiah, which is, as wax melts in front of the fire, so the wicked perish in his presence. 
but the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. See, some are comfortable with a God like this, and some um, are terrified by God. Again, describing the two groups. And finally, I think that the point that is sometimes made um, maybe against this view of what happens is that it is weak on sin, perhaps. Well, I think this first. For sin pays its wage death. I think this view is hard on sin because it makes sin rebellion, distrust. That's what sin is. It makes it the destructive agent, not God. I think it magnifies, it worsens the horrible results of sin. And I think it is, in that sense, it is hard on sin uh, rather than suggesting that it, unless God were to inflict a certain amount of punishment, he would not be a God that we could love, worship, and admire. Okay, I think sin is, uh, sin causes death, not God in the end. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that there is so much description here in the Bible and especially in your life where we can know you, we can love you, we can trust you. But there are these things that uh, we grapple to understand about what happens to those who reject your love, your offer of friendship, and so as each of us come to our own understanding of how this works, may this understanding and this uh, truth bring us to see that there is never a reason to be afraid of you. Amen.